Hello, I'm Hashem Montasser. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Conversations. We're currently on a short summer break and we'll return in September with brand new episodes. In the meantime, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite episodes. This is the one I had with Mohammed Balut, founder of Kitopi, which went on to become the fastest startup in the Middle East and reach unicorn status. Yep, that's a billion dollar valuation. I spoke to Mo in early 2020 about his journey as a serial entrepreneur and his vision for Kitopi as a global brand. Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast where we feature entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm Hashem Montasser, the founder of the Lighthouse. In this episode, we talk to Muhammad Balut, founder of one of the most exciting startups in the food tech arena and one that is rapidly disrupting the restaurant supply chain. His startup, Kitopi, is enabling restaurants to scale up quickly by installing them in its cloud kitchens, cooking on their behalf, and handling all their logistical needs. Originally from Lebanon, Mohammed is a third culture kid who was born and raised in Dubai. He's a serial entrepreneur and in 2007 founded BMB, which became one of the largest confectionery businesses in the Middle East. There was a Singaporean company looking for uh, a supplier of ingredients, or looking looking for a distributor for his ingredients, uh, of confection ingredients, and uh, and then my brother, you know, thought this is a good idea. I thought it's a horrible idea. And why uh, did you think it was a horrible? Because idea? in in two thousand eight, uh, what was cool was to go into investment banking, and that's what I thought I was going to do. And all my, all my friends were, you know, going to be bankers, and uh, and then I was like, so I came here, studied, uh, you know, maths for. So many years, and I'm gonna go do trading. No, I'm not doing that. And then, uh, and after maybe like the 20th attempt of him trying to convince me this is a good idea, I was like, look, if in three months you can kind of set up licensing and do all that, I'll be there in the summer. Let's explore. And then the financial crisis hit, and actually, I didn't get a job in banking uh, as easy as I thought I'll get. And and I was in this, I was in Dubai. I was like, you know what? You set it up. Let's explore this further. And then that's how it started. We started with distribution of confectionery ingredients and uh, in a small warehouse in Sharjah. And how old were you at the time? 21. Wow, okay. And then we quickly realized that our customers were uh, family businesses uh, in the manufacturing space and haven't been disrupted or changed what they do for the past 10 decades. And so we quickly realized that there's a gap of, you know, us manufacturing confectionery much more efficiently uh, and adapting to, you know, millennials. And so we, we started that. That picked up very fast. We uh, became the largest manufacturers of ethnic sweets in, uh, in the world. Uh, so we were producing in the world. particularly Arabic ethnic sweets. How, how long was that period from starting to... So it, my journey was around eight years. Okay. And, uh, and then we supplied like Walmart and, and Carrefour and Starbucks in over 30 countries. And it was a great journey. Uh, learned a lot, uh, particularly what not to do, in, you know, in, in the future. Uh, but uh, but it was amazing. I think a key key inflection point was when we realized that for us to scale up, we really needed the right team, right? So like my brother and I, doing it alone was probably not the wisest uh, thing, and we quickly built up a team that uh, that helped us scale as much faster. Uh, so then we expanded across multiple markets. Uh, we, we moved away from just reliance on GCC. We looked at the US and different parts of Europe and Asia. Uh, and and then, I mean, I never really thought I'm going to sell my business. Mm. Uh, but then, you know, we got lots of uh, 
inbound leads of people wanting to uh, you know come in and invest, invest. Or- and at that point I probably had like you know less than hundred thousand dollars in my bank and I was like you know what you know, financial freedom does sound good uh, and I just you know uh, a call to a mentor of mine saying what do you think I mean I've never really thought of exiting in, in this part of the world we just yeah we just do it don't have exits right I mean when I when I first told my father look I'm thinking of selling my stake He's like, what are you thinking? I mean, you should not be doing this. You know, you should. He thought this is a bad thing, you know, as opposed to celebrating a success. Yeah. And uh, and then yeah, I, so called up my mentor, who was an investor of mine in this business as well. I was like, what do you think? And he's probably one of the very few uh, people who have done an exit here. And he's like, just do it. It's the right price, right time. You should do it. When you were making that decision. Was there, from your perspective, any culture resistance, or were you, because you were young, still very young, even after eight years, looked at it more as sort of, it's an opportunity and I can then, you know, reinvest this capital and do something different? Look, I, I think one of the things I probably should have done more is thought of what am I going to do after? And it happened so fast where I didn't think at all what I would do after. It's very much, I was, you know, eight years, you know, I started when I was 21, so very little experience in, in the real world. Uh, so I was pretty burnt out at year eight. Um, and just you know, just imagining that you know I am not going to work again for money as a sole driver of why I work um, very felt felt very good and felt that you know what after eight years this is an amazing exit, uh, but not just for me, for me and my whole family and, and all your stickers and everyone I know. So why do you and think so, then there's resistance from others? I mean, I don't want to speak on behalf of others, but why do you think in this part of the world we do see even with successful businesses so much resisting about that yeah look I, we never built bmb to be about us well, my brother and myself right so we always built it around the culture of the people around us the team so that was a good starting point um, and i think the difference between what we did and what others did is maybe a lot of family businesses are built around them as the you know so we we hired a lot of you know a, a great c-suite team um, and and we put in good governance. So I think there was it wasn't as entrenched. It was it was ready for me to exit. Don't forget, I was you know running the business for eight years with my brother, and I feel the fact that I could do a full exit is not common in this part of the world, right? So typically they would need you to stay longer, to be involved for longer. And the fact that I was ready to leave, and the business is still doing really well, is a sign of you know we we put the right structure in place. And I feel that's maybe the difference between us and other family businesses who. Know, created more about a legacy of the family. So, so BNB wasn't about the family, it was more about the business. And people talk a lot about the, the importance but difficulty of co-founders. In a sense, you and your brother are co-founders, you're adding here a point of being your brother. So it's also not just anyone that you picked a friend. How was that relationship? How did you guys manage through those eight years? I'm sure there were ups and downs, Difficult days. How did you guys manage? So I, I, I always. Say, Are you still friends? So my brother is always the better person, right? So he's yeah. been consistently the better person. Good cop, bad cop. And um, and and even in our relationship. So I think that you know, with any co-founder, any any jointly founded business, you're always going to have complexities. The good thing is there wasn't the power struggle. Right? It was very clear who does what, and that's kind of key to making things successful. What did he do broadly versus you? We, the way we simplify it to our internal stakeholders is he brings in the product, I bring in the money. Right? So uh, he, he creates supply, I create demand, and uh, and so he, he built on innovation, product development, uh, and made sure you know we we you know be on top of trends of food or confectionery. 
And I made sure that we created enough demand for that. So, and that worked really well. That's what he was passionate about. I was passionate about the operations and and um, and then the people side. And then it uh, and it worked out very well. And I think so. My brother and I are very, very, very close. We remain very close. So we still have our Friday early morning meetings where we talk about what I do and what he do and ideas and how we can improve both businesses. Uh, instead of just talking about one business, now we talk about two. But he's still with that business. He now runs the business. He's very passionate about it. And if you were to ask him and I. You know, to describe our old company, so the company's called BMB. Yes. I would sit and talk about the operations and and our growth. And my brother talked about the product, right? So like he was very attached to the business and the product, and I think that's amazing. And uh, and and he felt that he needed a couple more years in it, and uh, he wasn't done with the journey yet. And mm-hmm. and so um, and it's been another ten plus years for him. Yeah, it's he's, uh, it's it's been over ten years. So and and he's loving it. And I and I'm sure at some point in his journey, he'll probably explore. Uh, other options, but at, at this point, he's loving it. So you left, you sold your stake, and then what happened? Then you sat where you're a young guy, and you were like, "Wow, now I'm I'm financially independent, but I have to do something with my life." I was 28, and uh, and I exited, and it uh, it was really weird. So you know, I was driving. A lot. So when I when I when it really hit is the day I stopped going to the office, and um, and then the money hit the account, and I was like, and it was there was a clear. You know, and, there's and I, something there. There was something there, and I felt that you know, wow, you know, it, 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 it passed in a minute, and, I, and life was back to normal. And um, and so for me, it was there wasn't a plan, and I, I encourage many people who are going to go through an exit to think about things ahead of time. It's like thinking of your t- retirement, except it's not going to be a retirement, right? Yeah. So then you think about what's going to happen next, versus just letting life happen. So the first couple of days after, the first couple of weeks after, it was a very uncomfortable thinking. I'm, I'm a workaholic, right? So like not going to work and not waking up at 5 a.m. and doing something felt odd. And um, and I think after a couple of weeks, my my wife realized that, uh, you know, this is going downhill. And uh, so <laughs> this is not good for the relationship. You have two options. He needs to get out of the house. Go do something else or, uh, or you're getting out of the house. And then that's when I, um, and I started angel investing. Which was exciting at the beginning, and uh, you know, you know, betting on other people's ability to run their businesses, uh, and passing on my knowledge. Um, so did that for a while, and then as I was doing that, realized in a particular investment I was about to do, realized that there's a gap in, uh, in the food space. And so if you look at you know many other verticals in e-commerce, there's been a lot of you know disruption. But if you look at the food tech space. No one's really done much apart from aggregation of orders on the front end. Correct. And by aggregation of orders, just to be clear, so people understand, you, we're talking about the Uber Eats and the Deliveroo's and the, the big aggregators. So if you look at the typical operations of restaurant, very little has done to change the way we operate things. And it's, tip, and it's the same way we, if you look at a typical restaurant today, it's, it's still the way we do things 100 years ago. And so that's where, you know, and, and, and my idea was, I was about to invest in a restaurant and I realized that how can this restaurant go from one to a thousand? I know a very good restaurant here. If you want to invest, by the way, just uh, it's in D three, so very close. Just keep that in mind. I, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how we're going to help enable you. That's right. And so realize that why can't I build a platform that allows brands to plug in restaurant brands to plug in and scale up globally? So that's where the inspiration first started. And this was which year now? This was you know sometime mid two thousand seventeen. So this is the early early stage of thinking about Ketopia, in yeah. a sense. Okay. 
So on a trip to the U.S., I was uh, with my co-founder today, um, who is a very, very close friend from childhood. And I was bouncing that idea off him. You know, I, I was like, look, I mean, I keep bouncing ideas off him. And he, he thinks my ideas post my first business were always really horrendous. But this one is like, you know, there's something there. And then that next morning, you know, he we, we talked more in depth and, and maybe version 3000 of the idea uh, was something we both wanted to back. And, um, and, and we started, so we went live in January of uh, Jan 5th, 2018. Ketopi, just explain the concept in a, in a minute for those that haven't heard about it. So Ketopi is a managed kitchen as a service. What we do is we enable brands um, to, to scale up really fast by plugging into our platform where we manage their operations. Thinking of it, think of it as a franchising 2.0. So you're a brand, you're in Dubai, you want to move to New York, or you're in you know, Delhi, you want to move to London, you plug into our platform, you license your brand out to us, you make a royalty fee, we, we cook and deliver on your behalf. And the important part here is, so you have what's called the cloud kitchens, right? Many of them everywhere, where basically you bring these, you, but you do everything for the brands in the sense that... End-to-end service. Yes, exactly. So they give you the ingredients and you actually cook on behalf of those brands and then distribute and then obviously... Exactly. So we, they, they, as soon as they plug into us, what they do is as soon as they license their brand out to us, um, they, you know, we basically replicate what they do in their stores. And, and is it a la carte menu? In other words, if I am a brand Chicken X and I come to you and I say, I would like to partner with Kotopi, you go, because now you're in many places. You so are. part of it's a discussion we have and, and, and decisions we take are, are software driven. Uh, but so the idea here is you're a brand, you have, uh, you know, you, you're, you have a certain cuisine type that works in your market. That's a, that should be a given that you are successful as a brand and you want to scale up. Now we quickly evaluate what you do operationally to start to really understand, can we replicate what you do efficiently? Um, that's a key component, right? So can we replicate what you do with your guidelines? And then the second point is by doing so, can we you know, drive a joint profitable outcome? Uh, so matching demand to supply. So this is where we go look at what are the cuisine gaps in different parts of the world that we operate in, and um, and and you know what what availability do we have in our sites in those markets, and then that's when we plug you in. And when you launched at the beginning, did you launch having already a number of those restaurants uh, on your platform, so to speak, or you open and hope for the best and said? Let me now go and speak to X and Y. The first five brands were pure relationships I had, you know, in the food space. People wanted to buy. I mean, what we're doing, we're the first movers in this globally. So getting the first five brands to trust in what we do, I needed to find the craziest five restaurant owners who believed in me and, and uh, are willing to risk their brand reputation on this. Those crazy first set of businesses spearheaded Kitopi's growth to five countries today. More on how they're innovating the way restaurants scale and Mohammed's thoughts on how regional companies can become exporters of technology after the short break. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversation with our guest, Mohammed Balut, talking about his hot new venture, Kitopi. Before the break, Mohammed was telling us about starting Ketopi in its first location in Dubai. They're now in five countries, having added Saudi, Kuwait, the UK, and the US to their roster. The name itself, Ketopi, stands for Kitchen Operations Innovations, and that's what they're set out to do, to change how restaurants operate and help them scale up. 
So the easiest comparison I can give you to, to for everyone to relate to is if you were selling uh, fashion products or cosmetics, you, know, you wouldn't really think I need to open up a store anymore, right? So you would work with Shopify or Amazon um, and they would have fulfillment hubs all over the world where you can you know, list your product online and fulfill it in different parts of the world. If you think of food, we still think that we have to build a restaurant with a front of house. And if you order food online, you have to have a physical presence in you have to you have to be five miles close to every single customer, and we think that is something that dated. That is pretty dated, right? Mm-hmm. So why can't you have, you know, your brand everywhere in the world, uh, the same way you have your fashion everywhere in the world and your cosmetics and other e-commerce vertical vertical products? So so, so let me just uh, very important point here. I want to bring up and maybe push back a bit to understand from you. Question number one is. Um, obviously, this concept that you're talking about, Ketopia or something like it, um, lends itself to certain brands more than others. In other words, um, brands that are very highly geared towards delivery and eating at home. Do you feel there is a, I mean, it's a very, very large market, but saturation point? Or do you feel that even if you go to brands that would typically not associate with delivery, those should also today be doing something similar to that? Look, it depends on does your food travel well, right? So there's two components here. There's one, does your food travel well? And if it doesn't, can it travel well if you modify it? And the second part is, is your food driven by art or science? And if it's driven by art, as in there's a chef you know, sprinkling different stuff on it, and uh, it relies on that chef to that, that chef's to create that magic. Yeah, then, then it's probably not scalable to begin with. Forget on food delivery, it's just not scalable. But... If your food is driven by science, then it is scalable, and there is a there is a path for us to, um, you know, have create a global footprint for it. What about uh, many of us, including yourself, go to restaurants obviously for uh, the experiential aspect of that? So we we do care about the food, but we also care about the ambiance and the music and the waiters, and they might know you and etc. Do you think that's going away or do you feel that's just going to be more replaced? I think that's always going to exist. Okay. Right? So I think the experience is always critical. I think that there's going to be, the, the way we think of the experience in food is going to shift as well, similar to how it shifted in, in fashion. Right? So your traditional retail outlets have shifted how they even have their experience centers. Right. Uh, so think of Apple and how they, how they demonstrate what they do from an electronic store. So they've really shifted experience. So what we're doing as well is working on not just focusing on food delivery, but also other channels uh, that you can experience food. Can you elaborate on that? So today, if you think about um, your, you know, your, your stomach and how you consume food, right? So you consume food at home, you consume food, you know, whether you're in the office, you can you know, walk to the lighthouse and consume food there, you can be in a hotel. Um, you can, so no matter where you are, your kids can consume it in school. So our goal is how do we, how can we really help you as a brand, you know, get your brand on a global footprint, not just on food delivery, but on all other verticals of food, including takeaway and dining. And so there's a lot we're working on now to really shift, you know, really understand what the consumers want. And, um, and, and the key point here is if you, if you put your consumer hat on and think today, if you go to a restaurant, you're eating on their terms. They're giving you their menu, and you've now a decision just from you know, 30, 40 menu items to choose from on their terms. 
If you tell them to personalize your food or to think of your you know, health or your budget, they're not going to think of you. Mm-hmm. Right? So the way we think consumers, the future of consumer eating is, is eating on their terms, consumer terms. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trying to build. Interesting. And uh, do you feel, do you create your own virtual brands as well? Or you're simply a, obviously create that platform? Or do you create your own on top of it? Yeah, no, what we do is very much, we enable brands to scale up. And we think that being neutral is, uh, is pretty important. You don't want to compete with your, your, your customers, Correct. essentially. You're in a number of markets. Uh, when you're looking to target a new market, I mean, obvious metrics would be size of market. But we also know certain facts. For example, you had mentioned to me at some point Kuwait being this really crazy delivery market where a very high density. So are you, what factors are you looking in terms of which markets to go to? So online ordering maturity is important for us. So Kuwait's a good example of that, where you know a, a big chunk of the population order food online. Um, so that's obviously one of the metrics we, we look at when we determine which cities to expand to. But there's many other factors, um, such as you know, depth and density of the market and, and other, other variables that, we, that are important to us to, to really understand, can we scale up brands into that city and end up in a profitable environment? Why, just Kuwait, out of curiosity, why would Kuwait specifically be, for example, higher than, it's a relatively small market in terms of population. Why, why is there something there? What's the secret sauce? If I was to speculate on why that worked is, you know, you had two Kuwait-founded businesses that started this whole online food revolution in, in our part of the world. And I think that's, you know, that started the movement. That started, everyone adopted technology and food ordering much earlier and I think that's kind of a big reason why they were much more advanced mm-hmm. than other other parts of the world, other parts of at least the Middle East. And where does the U.S. stand in terms of that? So now we've seen obviously aggregators there as well, of course, but we're starting to see now cloud kitchen models are growing there quite aggressively. It feels to me, I'm not the expert, that they were sort of behind in this, interestingly enough, for a country that's typically been ahead in many of the tech trends. Yeah, I think in the U.S., depending on, I think, we, 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 you know, we say the U.S. in this part of the world, we say the U.S., but actually the U.S. is like, yeah. like saying Asia and Europe and Africa. and Africa all in one, right? So I think if you're saying New York, uh, the challenge you have on the cloud kitchen space and why it didn't evolve as fast as it, it evolved in Asia and the Middle East is real estate is much harder to find there, right? So negotiating a lease there, um, you need to win an award for every lease you've signed. You know? So like in Dubai, you can sign a, sign a lease in a week. If you can get it done in six months in New York, I think you've done a good job. And I think that, you know, landlords there are much pickier on who to have on their, um, in their space. They typically want a restaurant that has a track record as opposed to a cloud kitchen that's never, you know, never been in this particular market. So that's why New York hasn't, hasn't evolved as fast as other markets. But, uh, but definitely on the West Coast, it has evolved much faster. And you see a lot of cloud kitchens popping up there. And so our view is the U.S. is going to catch up very fast. We're, you know, at the forefront of making that happen. And, uh, and it's going to be a very exciting market. And when you look at that whole value chain that you've just discussed, if I were today to start a new company and come to you for advice and tell you I'm very interested in tech, I'm very interested in food, which part of the value chain would you recommend for me to look at? So if you are a entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, wanting to build a food brand, Tech-enabled food brand. Data-driven uh, tech-enabled food brand. I would say, one, don't build a restaurant. 
Okay. Right. That's, Thank you for that. You're too late. <laughs> <laughs> you were successful, but that's a minority. So I would say don't build a restaurant because the likelihood of uh, you succeeding is extremely, extremely low. And unless it's a passion project, in that case, do whatever you want. Um, if you are trying to find a gap between demand and supply, work very closely you know, with either the likes of Kitopi or other cloud kitchen providers to understand the gaps between demand and supply in a particular hyper-local spot. So not just saying Dubai, but for example, saying Dubai Marina, or not just saying New York, saying, for example, Brooklyn. So understanding in every particular hyper-local spot, what are the gaps between demand and supply? Understanding that and building a cuisine accordingly is probably the best use of your time. And, and we have a lot of uh, restaurant partners who started off with us with one brand and now have five brands and and quickly understood the gaps between uh, you know demand and supply in every uh, you know three four mile radius to every kitchen we have and, and start building more brands accordingly and because the the various entries so to speak for creating virtual brand is obviously far lower than physical uh, location what are the some of the metrics of success is it spending more marketing dollars is it, I mean, obviously, there has to be demand for that particular brand. But when they go to three, four, five, and then 10, some take off and some don't. What have you seen uh, are typical trends for what works? So I think building a brand is important. So the, if, you know, the whole notion of just build virtual brands that don't have brand equity is something we don't agree with. We think that you know, the best brands will have the best conversions and will succeed in the long run. Um, while there is going to be a massive a number of virtual brands pop up and we already see that happening in different markets. We think the most successful ones will be the ones who have built yeah, up great perfect. brand equity. So that's in the front. And that includes things like packaging and the whole experience. Yeah, and make sure you have a footprint outside just being online. Like just make sure that, you know, customers can associate with you everywhere through their life. Typically used here in this part of the world, the Middle East, for importing brands and you're going the other way around. So we're all very proud of that. And I think because of that, in a large extent, your, your success, uh, there's almost an ambassadorial role you play in the entrepreneurship space in the region. What do you think uh, we need here, I'm talking broadly, not just in the, in the food space, to accelerate uh, bringing out companies like, like Kitopi to the outside world? So I think first, um, the Kareem exit, which we have just seen in the past couple of days, has been an amazing starting point where... You know, there's been more faith from from people who want to join startups, from from for investors, uh, for mothers and fathers who keep telling their kids, "Don't join a startup and go to you know, join an engineering company and uh, and be a bureaucrat, become a doctor or whatever." Which so, nothing wrong with that, but uh, so I think that this is Kareem was a start of this multiplier effect that we've seen in Latin America, we've seen in the U.S., we've seen in other parts of the world. Uh, that uh, that we're st it's starting now in 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 the Middle East, and I think it's it starts with people wanting to do the leap of faith and create good ideas, and then that's followed with investors wanting to invest in them, not just in the short run, not just in the seed and Series A, which you know we we have a lot of investors doing that, but more, also in growth capital. So one of the challenges that uh, that we we have noticed is how do you bridge that gap between being a Middle East business to you know, being a global business? That's one of the shifts that Kareem has helped change, as at least it started to change. So if I was to summarize, starts with 
you know, entrepreneurs taking that leap of faith and building up ideas and not worried about failure. And then the second part is having enough funding in the region to allow brands to go global um, and and um, and to back them, right? So if you look at the top performing Latin American brands, you know, they were backed by Latin American investors, top American funds, same thing. So that's so interesting. So you're suggesting that uh, the Middle East capital should back all the way until they reach kind of the threshold of becoming global versus starting here, which is what some of the trends we've seen, and then very quickly shifting to going to Western capital because they're trying to go global. True. And I just think that it's a, it's a component of the market being more mature. And uh, and I think we're, we're about to get there. We just need to have, you know, it's not the lack of liquidity in the region that we're suffering with. It's a lack of liquidity that want to back regional companies that we think, you know, that needs to change pretty fast. And to your point, the lack of exits. So, I mean, again, Karim being a very positive point that people who have done that previously have not seen certainly as many exits as you see in the US, but not even Europe or Asia. And therefore, maybe they were discouraged. Sure. No, we definitely think it's the beginning of a trend. We hope to, you know, join their journey of, uh, you know, allowing shareholders to uh, multiply their, their revenue, but more importantly, you know, building um, the next generation of entrepreneurs out of Kitopi who can go build their own businesses as well, similar to what's happening with Karin now. So I think this is uh, the beginning of uh, of, uh, of a very fast-moving ship that's, uh, that's just going to keep multiplying uh, very fast. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you had your own company, you successfully sold it, you're now on your second company, which is growing well, very well. Um, What's the end game here? Have you thought about it? So my partners and I, from, from the early stage of this business, just quickly realized that we are not building a business to sell. That's a very important component I encourage everyone to think of, right? So building a business to want to sell it really fast, you end up building a business that's not sustainable, that doesn't you know, build the right culture in it. So we're building a business that we would like you know, it to survive the next couple of hundred years. In the process, there's going to be some stakeholders, whether it's you know Architopians, uh, whether it is members of the leadership team, whether it is investors who come come on board and some will leave. And uh, but but at least as founders, I can tell you, we're very passionate about what we do, and I cannot imagine on a personal level something else I would do that you know yes, can you can know. give me that rush more than more than I'm getting now, Kitopi. So, short answer is we're in it for the long run, and uh, I would like to keep building on that. As the company has evolved so quickly, your role must have evolved and changed as well. Today, in most days, what, where, where, which area of the business, because there are so many of them, do you spend most of your time on? So it depends on the season. So we were in the fundraising this, season. Okay. And that that's looked like 90% of my time. And now that that season's over, yeah. uh, we're now, I'm now in the hiring season. Okay. Uh, so literally, Which is ongoing, I, right? Which, which is ongoing. I think we I spend a lot of time just you know, making sure we can hire people who are smarter than us and better than us. And we have an amazing team across the world doing exactly that. And so how I spend most of the time is just making sure we have the best people, every single role that we can empower to keep this moving really fast. One last question I have for you, which relates to food, but it's not about the business. Since uh, you are also a foodie, so we're a little bit curious to know um, what kind of food you like. Any place you recommend? Look, I have to tell the speakers, you told me to say lighthouse. 
<laughs> I did not. <laughs> Liar. No, more even, I'm, we're just curious to be about your own food habits. I mean, is there a type of food you like? Uh, you know, I, I, my, my resolution of, one of my resolutions of 2020 is to uh, lose a lot of weight. Um, and, and I think that by, by doing so, I quickly realized that the offering of healthy food that doesn't just taste like, you know, raw Wood. lettuce is very limited, right? And the amount of transparency in food you get in most countries is also very limited, right? So, um, this is something we're trying to solve at Kitopi and make sure that we have enough offering for, to meet any of your targets, whether it's to lose weight, gain weight, you know, spend less money, spend more money. It's how can we make sure we fit into your goals as a customer? And, and it's partly also trying to solve my problem. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We'd love to hear from you. So please give us your feedback with a review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite players, or give us a shout on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE. As always, you can subscribe in your favorite podcast player and find all of our previous episodes on our website, thelighthouse.ae slash podcast.